Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so let's look at this passage together today. As the Apostle Paul concludes the 11th chapter, which we looked at two weeks ago, it is is as if he cannot help but just sing out in jubilant exaltation. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of or rather of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways, concluding for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Indeed. It is a conclusion of everything that Paul has taught us up until that point. I mean, who can resist joining Paul in this beautiful doxology? Praising God for who He is. Praising God for what He has done. When I preached this two weeks ago, it was as if I needed straps to hold me down. I wanted to, to jump with exaltation. It is such a beautiful conclusion. But it doesn't stop there. What God has done has been clearly revealed to us up into this point, seemingly chapter by chapter. Surely there is no other book in the Bible that has the theological scope of Romans. This led John Calvin to say, When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him, to the understanding of the whole Scripture. And if Calvin's right, and and I really think that he is, I don't think that's hyperbole, then Romans serves as a lens, so to speak, to see the gospel throughout Scripture. And I know that many of you who have been studying the book of Romans as I have been preaching through it, I know that you have seen this as well, as how this opens our eyes to so many different areas within God's Word. I mean, consider, for example, in just those first 11 chapters that we have looked at up until this point, how we heard the gospel of God so clearly proclaimed. For example, God is perfect, perfectly righteous. We are not. And Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And so there is no hope for you. There is no hope for me. There is no hope for anyone unless God acts. And so He has. 
He has acted on our behalf by sending His Son to serve as our atoning substitute, that we might be justified by God's grace. He says, quote, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In Christ and in Christ alone, we are reconciled to God. Not merely like children, we're reconciled to God as children. And as children, we're guaranteed an inheritance. We're given His Spirit. We're assured of this. Listen closely. We're assured that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's something to be assured of, is it not? And all of this is according to God's sovereign plan, which He is working out perfectly for our good and His glory. Of course, there's far more that we could say here, and I could go on and on of what we have looked at up until this point. I mean, for example, we think of God's choosing and redeeming Israel through whom He sent His Son, our Savior, We think of Gentile inclusion into the church and His preparation of her as His bride waiting for our Lord's return. But as Paul transitions from this chapter 11 to this chapter 12, we are reminded that the purpose of this special revelation is not merely to consume what we have been taught And to conceive what he has said. There's purpose in everything that we have considered up until this point. Worship. Worship. We gather, think about it, we gather every Lord's Day together as believers. We gather with intent. What's the intent? Worship. But our worship does not end on Sunday night. Our worship continues in our individual lives as the whole of our lives is to be lived to the glory of God. Hey, worship, folks, doesn't end on Sunday night and we need to be careful that we do not divorce Monday from Sunday. That we don't subdivide our lives into sacred and secular categories. This is the temptation, isn't it? We're tempted to think, oh, that was beautiful worship with our family yesterday. But oh, here comes Monday. Monday's coming. (laughs) We're tempted to think, well, this is how I live my life in the secular world. This is how I live my life in the church world. And let me tell you, that is a recipe for disaster in the Christian life. If we do this, if we divorce Monday from Sunday, we will become a knowledgeable, make no mistake about it, we'll become a knowledgeable but lifeless people. Knowing the rich doctrines of grace, but not living them day by day. No, when we truly have experienced 
the sovereign grace of God, when we truly understand the magnitude of the gospel, it will impact how we live life. Not as the world, but how we live life as children of God. So the practical question I have for you is this. How shall we then live? How shall we then live in light of what Paul has preached to us up until this point? In light of all of this magnificent doctrine that we have looked at. In light of the exclamation point of the conclusion of chapter 11. I ask you, in light of all of this, how shall we then live? What motivates us to live to the glory of God? How do we live life as worship? How are we to live for Christ given all of the complexities of your life and mine? In summary, we must live motivated by mercy. We must live sacrificed to worship. We must live transformed to discern. And so that's my summary for the passage today. Let's look at this first together. We are to live motivated by mercy. The mercy of God, let us be clear, is a voluntary divine act of God in which He does not give us what we deserve. What we deserve is condemnation. But according to God's mercy, we receive grace. And as mercy is a divine act of God, it is undetermined by anyone or anything. Anything but the sovereign will of God. God clearly says in chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So mercy is not warranted by man, but by the will of God. Who then has God shown mercy to? Who then has God shown mercy to? All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have been shown God's mercy, received His grace, saved unto eternity. For this reason, Paul says in this very first verse, I appeal to you. And by what does he appeal to us? Look at it. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you by what? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. It is an appeal rooted in the reality of the mercy that we have been shown. And it should motivate how you live your life. It should motivate how I live my life. Not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on. The truth is, we are all motivated by something. There's not an unmotivated person in this building or watching via our live stream. We're all motivated by something. And the reality is, is that our flesh consistently offers up substitutes to motivate us. For example, rather than God's mercy, we may be motivated by man's money. Valuing life by the dollar rather than eternal destiny. We may be motivated by recognition, seeking the accolades of man, rather than the applause of heaven. We may be motivated by power, striving for the top, rather than learning 
to be a servant of all. We may be motivated by pleasure, indulging the temporal at the expense of the eternal. And the list goes on, and I'm sure that you could add many, many more to this list, but the point is this. You and I are easily motivated by the wrong things, ignoring the rich blessing of God's mercy. But when we are motivated by mercy, we experience in our lives what is ours in Christ. When we're motivated by mercy, we experience in our lives, our day-to-day lives, what is ours in Christ. So if we're to be motivated by mercy, how shall we then live? That's the question again, right? Well, I have a few suggestions based on what we have looked at up until this point from Romans chapter 1 through 11. Just three suggestions I want you to consider today in helping us to live motivated by mercy. First, remember... You deserve your wages. How about that? You deserve something. I deserve something. What is it? We deserve our wages. Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. So the wages that you've earned, the wages that I have earned, are death. But, here's the gospel. But all who are in Christ, get not what we deserve, but what God freely gives. For the free offer of God is what? The free gift of God is what? Salvation in Christ. Here's the way that Paul put it when he was writing to the Ephesians. He said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, we deserve death. God gives life. Near the end of his life, and his mind failing, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, could still confess this. He said, I am an old man. My mind is almost gone. But I can remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Yeah. One of the ways that we're motivated by mercy is we need to remember we're due our wages. But how great is our Savior who has earned our salvation? Secondly, be grateful Be grateful that you were saved by grace through faith, which was not your own doing, but a gift from God. I know people argue about what we bring to our salvation and what we could earn and what we could do. (laughs) That is the most ridiculous thing. And it also is disheartening. I thank God I brought nothing to my salvation but my sin. Hmm. If grace is the unmerited favor of God, how much did you merit? If faith, like grace, is a gift from God, how much did you earn? When we consider that our eternal destiny is neither merited nor earned, our response must be gratitude. Imagine the gratitude when I realize that everything that matters for eternity 
I contributed nothing. Nothing. That breeds gratitude within us. John Calvin said this, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. That's worth remembering. I need to remember. You need to remember. I am indebted to God's mercy. I must be grateful. And as I am grateful, I am motivated by mercy. Thirdly, consistently reflect on the reality of grace's reign in your life. And I'm drawing from primarily Romans chapter 5 here, if you're taking notes. Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. We are to reflect on the reality of the grace of God's reign in our lives. In fact, just as you can do nothing to deserve God's grace, just as you cannot earn nor merit His mercy, you can do nothing to forfeit His mercy or lose His grace. Since sin and death have been defeated for you, not by you, since sin and death have been defeated for you by Christ, grace reigns in your life. Protecting and preserving that you may persevere unto the end. Most assuredly, you and I can confess this with Paul. Here's what Paul confessed when he was writing to young Timothy. He confessed, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Mm. Chief of sinners. Can I get a hand? Right? Yeah, that's you. That's me. And interestingly enough, those who are motivated by mercy also see and use their lives as a conduit of God's mercy to others. This is what Paul's saying. Not only is he confessing that he is the chief of all sinners, he's also saying, God showed me mercy that God might use me to show mercy to others. And so in these three examples that I've given to you, and we could go on and on, could we not? This is to motivate us by mercy. Our flesh, of course, hates the mercy of God. Make no mistake about it. Because of God's forgiveness. Because why? Because our flesh hates mercy because it denies self. The flesh wants to elevate self. And this can't be ignored. As if your flesh would be silenced. <laughs> How many of you have silenced your flesh? Only to find the flesh... I always use the example, it's, it's like that ugly monster that just pops its head up. There it is. Thought it was dead. It's alive and well. <laughs> as our ever-present foe, as the hater of the gospel and the obedience that it demands, our flesh will not willingly be silenced. Therefore, we, we actively, we must willingly and consistently 
offer up and worship to God ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So the second thing that I want us to look at in this passage is, is that we are to be sacrificed to worship. We are to be sacrificed to worship. Now, let's be clear if you haven't picked up on the analogy. Paul is drawing from the example of the Old Testament sacrifices in worship. But there are a number of striking differences between us and those Old Testament sacrifices. I mean, for example, Old Covenant sacrifices involved a clean, slain, lifeless animal upon the altar of God, not living children of God. Another example is that Old Covenant sacrifices carried atoning significance, pointing to the final, complete sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Not only can we not atone for our sins, it's impossible to atone for our sins. Christ has atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. No, the sacrifice that we offer of ourselves is both holy, meaning set apart, and acceptable to God for Christ's sake. It is a sacrifice that is acceptable to God for Christ's sake. It is only through the blood of Christ that we can even offer up any form of worship. And so we come and we offer up ourselves Holy and acceptable in Christ alone. In Christ alone. So what then does Paul mean by a living sacrifice? Why even use that word living? To answer this, we must first remember back to Romans chapter 6. Can you remember that far back? Remember back to Romans chapter 6? What did Paul say at the very beginning of that chapter? What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Meaning, should we just get with it with sin because God's grace is exalted when we sin? And what did he say to that? By no means. We've died to sin. How in the world can we live in it any longer if we've died to it? Well, we're not to engage any part of our being, Paul goes on to say in that chapter. Not to engage any part of our bodies or our being as instruments for unrighteousness. But we're to what? In chapter 6, verse 13, Paul said, we are to present ourselves, don't miss it here, we are to present ourselves as instruments for the righteousness of God. Tools in the hands of our Redeemer as those who have been brought from death to life. And as sin is a ready reality of our fallen nature, sacrifice, you see, is the perfect metaphor for Paul to use here. It is a metaphor showing us that we worship God in our day-to-day lives as we actively put sin to death and live to God for Christ's sake. What Paul describes here, let's be clear, is nothing short of comprehensive. If you're thinking that there is part of your life that maybe I'll just move it over here. As if 
God won't mind if I just keep this away. (laughs) One commentator describes it this way. It is not only that we can give that God demands. He demands the giver. Our worshipful sacrifice then includes every single part of our being. The giver. Ourselves. Early church father John Chrysostom wrote this. He said, And how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a whole burnt offering. You see, whether it be our hands, or our feet, our thoughts, or our tongues, our eyes, or our ears, every square inch of our being we give to the Lord as living Breathing sacrifices in praise to our Creator, in praise to our Redeemer, in praise to our Lord. And so let me ask you, what have you withheld from the sacrificial altar? Only you and God can answer that. What have you held back or harbored like Rachel's idol? What have you seemingly hidden Like David's adultery and murder. Do you not know? Do you not know that every nanosecond of your existence is lived quorum Deo? Before the face of God? He who knows all, sees all. And for those sacrificed to worship, that's a beautiful thing. I've got nothing to hide before the God who I worship. Think about that. That's where you want to be. That's where I want to be. Nothing inhibited. Nothing held back. This is it, Lord. I started to say the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I'm not sure there's anything good, just ugly and bad. But here it is, Lord. I hold nothing back, submitting myself to you as a living sacrifice. And so we worship the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Thirdly, third thing that I want us to look at in this passage is that we are transformed to discern. We are transformed to discern. We're motivated by mercy. We're sacrificed to worship. And we are transformed to discern. And by the way, I realize this is way easier said than done. Right? (laughs) We may desire to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God only to find that the Spirit is oh so willing, but the flesh is so very weak. Not only is our flesh weak, but the world in which we live is consistently appealing to our fleshly appetite. The world is consistently enticing even inviting us to conform to the mold of this evil age, rather than the will of God. It is not a matter of force, but appeal. It is not to the body, but to the mind. What Paul describes is nothing short than a battle of the mind for Christ. 
It is therefore imperative that we renew, or in a modern sense, that word, that verb could be translated reprogram. It is imperative that we renew or that we reprogram our minds according to the ways of God, in direct contrast to the ways of the world. What we think really does dictate how we live. I know, I know, the world wants you to think that you can just check it at the door. That what you think doesn't really influence how you live. Paul says differently, the Word of God tells us that we must not neglect the importance of the mind. John Stott argues, quote, anti-intellectualism is part of the fashion of the world, and therefore a form of worldliness. To denigrate the mind is to undermine foundational Christian doctrines. Christian, hear me clearly. There is a battle for your mind. And cluttering it with the noise of news, the maelstrom of social media, the inanity of entertainment won't lead to sacrifice transformation. But I will tell you what it will lead to. Continuing to be conformed to this world. If that's what you want, if you want to continue to be conformed to this world, just keep it up. The world is ever ready to accept you. But rather, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The tense of the verb translated transformed here implies an ongoing process. In other words, it's not as if the mind is just instantaneously metamorphosized into the mind of Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't work that way, does it? And it doesn't work that way in any other area of our sanctification either. You know this. The rest of our sanctification, the transformation that is occurring as we are conformed by the Holy Spirit more and more to the image of Christ, that includes our mind. Here's the way the, the Apostle Paul put it to the Corinthians. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so in dependence upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, we, as Paul said in, in Romans chapter 8, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And this we do with purpose, that we may discern, that is, understand and agree with the will of God. Now as Paul uses this word, as it's translated in the ESV, discern, he uses it here not in the sense of decipher or to solve a mystery, but rather the word discern here means to understand or agree. Like a work of art, we grow to appreciate more and more the more time we spend in it, or the artist might say the more time we spend in it, we mature and grow in our understanding and agreement with the will of God. As God's will is given to us in the Son of God. As God's will is revealed to us in His Word. So we mature. We grow 
We're transformed to discern, to grow in our understanding and our agreement as we spend time in the Word of God. And as we do so, our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, and this goes all the way back to the emphasis of it in the Protestant Reformation, the Holy Spirit uses God's Word. For He is the one who has given God's Word. I cannot emphasize to you enough how important it is for you to be consistently, daily, if not more often, in the Word of God. Because I promise you this, the world is throwing everything contrary to the Word of God with you. As a pastor friend of mine said to me recently, and I hope you're not offended by this, but here it is, he said, you realize that a sermon, a 30-minute sermon on Sunday morning cannot undo two hours of Fox News every night. Sorry. Or insert whatever kind of TV nonsense you're into. You can't undo that with 30 minutes of preaching. Especially my preaching. So we've got to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. And I might add, and James Boyce has an entire chapter in his commentary on this very thing. The other thing is, is unplug from all of that TV news to begin with. But that's another topic for another day. See James Boyce. He does a much better job at arguing at than I, than I. But the point is this. Is that this transformation takes place. And if the will of God is good, and it is. And if the will of God is acceptable, and indeed it is. And if the will of God is perfect, and I promise you God's word says that it is. Then we must accept it willingly. Don't have a tug of war with your Bible. You know those folks? They read the Bible and they want to fight verse by verse. Stop it! It's the word of God. Who are you, O man, a woman, to fight with the Word of God? Submit yourself to the Word of God and drink it in. So we go to the inspired Word of God. Not merely as a point of acknowledgement, but we go to it to drink it in like a fresh spring, unadulterated and life-giving in its very essence. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, as we go to the Word of God, we imbibe. R.C. Sproul said this, character, characteristic of Sproul. He said, God gives us the revelation of sacred Scripture in order for us to have our minds changed. So we begin to think like Jesus. Sanctification and spiritual growth are all about this. If you just have it in your mind and you don't have it in your heart, you don't have it. But you can't have it in your heart without first having it in your mind. We want to have a mind informed by the Word of God. Yeah, we do, don't we? I want my mind to be informed by the Word of God. It was said, and I've lost the name now, help me here, evangelist from England preaching during the time of Jonathan Edwards. Somebody help me here, I've lost it. Well, it was going to be a great point in this sermon. <laughs> It'll come to me. It was said that when he would preach, that when he would talk, that he had immersed himself in Scripture so much 
that it just oozed out. It was really hard for him to have a conversation without a biblical analogy. It was really hard for him to proclaim anything without pulling in Scripture because he had immersed his mind so much in the Word of God. May God give us that kind of zeal for His Word. And so, how shall we then live? How shall we who are Christians, how shall we live this Christian life? By God's grace, let us be motivated by mercy. You are a great sinner and an ever greater Savior. Let us live according to God's mercy. Let us be sacrificed to worship. Hold nothing back. Give yourself wholly and completely to the Lord. And according to God's mercy... And by His grace, let us be transformed to discern that we may live day by day to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. May we be a people of Your Word. And as we have considered Your Word today, we look back and rejoice in Your mercy and grace shown to sinners like us. May our lives be motivated by it. May we willingly worship you by offering every bit of us up to you as as living sacrifices. And may our lives be transformed as we are changed, as we are metamorphosized by the Holy Spirit's application of your word in our lives. Oh God, may we, your people, glorify you with every bit of our existence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.